you're new with us, we're going through 1 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians if you prefer, and uh, we've been off for a couple of weeks, uh, it's a joy to dive back in. Uh, this book is taking us in all sorts of directions. Uh, if you're new to the Bible, Paul started this church in Corinth, and uh, some years later uh, writes to respond to uh, some reports that he's heard and uh, respond to some questions that they've asked him. And so it's uh, a book that hits on all sorts of topics. And today we have the exciting topic of lawsuits among believers. And so uh, let's pray together because there's actually a lot of wonderful things in this passage and I want us to see them. Father, we pray as uh, the Apostle Paul prayed for the Ephesians that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened that we may know the hope to which you have called us the glorious inheritance in the saints, and the immeasurable greatness of the power of Jesus at work within us. So do that work today. Give our hearts eyes to see and behold the wonder that's in this passage that we may glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm sure you've heard something along these lines before. It's just a symptom of a bigger problem. It could be your doctor referring to some major physical problem that he's made aware of in light of a uh, small symptom that has taken you to uh, see the doctor, or less dramatically but still troublesome. It may come from your, your mechanic uh, as you take your car in because it has a little squeak and you come to find out you need a new transmission. Take it in because it just has a little rattle and he tells you you need a whole new engine. The little problem actually is a symptom of a much bigger problem. And in this passage, the Apostle Paul says this whole matter of taking one another to court is a symptom of a bigger problem. The Corinthians have forgotten who they are now in Christ. He then goes more generally in verses 9 to 11 to, to describe other uh, unrighteous behaviors and basically says the same thing. This is stemming from a lack of understanding about who you now are in Christ. The Corinthians had failed to properly, properly understand and apply the gospel. They're not acting like Christians because they're not thinking like Christians. So this is another example in this book where Paul uses that classic become what you really are logic. Be who you are. You have been changed by the gospel. So bring your lifestyle and your relationships in the church in alignment with that new identity. You see in this passage, if you just glance through it, he calls uh, the Christians in Corinth several things. He calls them saints. He calls them brother or brothers. He says that they are those who have been washed, sanctified, justified. In contrast to verses 1 and 9, the unrighteous, or verse 2, the world, or verse 4, those who have no standing in the church. Or verse 6, unbelievers. Or verses 9 to 10, those whose lifestyle are characterized by the sins that are mentioned there. Now we've seen in the book of 1 Corinthians that Paul has addressed a number of problems. He's talked about divisions. He's talked about arrogance. He's talked about the failure to practice church discipline. He's responded to two reports, chapter 1, verse 11. There was a report given to him by Chloe's people that he responds to. And then in chapter 5, verse 1, there is a report to come, that comes to him that incest is taking place and the church is doing nothing about it. Soon, Paul will respond to something they wrote to him. If you look in chapter 7, verse 1, he says, Now concerning matters about which you wrote. Or chapter 8 begins the same way. Now concerning food uh, offered to idols. 
And there's another reference now concerning in chapter 12, verse 1, and chapter 16, verse 1. So it's like Paul is doing a bit of Q&A with the church throughout this book. He's dealing with topic after topic. And now he handles this topic of uh, suing a fellow believer. Now before we jump into the verses, I need to clear the runway for just a bit. A few points of context and clarity. This is probably the case of a wealthier church member taking advantage of a poorer church member. He's most likely throwing his legal weight around at the expense of the poor. In first century Roman context, those who took others to court had high social rank. And one who was socially inferior could not sue a superior. The system favored the elite. And we know later in this book, one of the problems around the Lord's Supper had to do with the haves and the have-nots. We don't know exactly what this dispute is about, but based on the language of verse 7, as he speaks of being defrauded or cheated, it seemed to be some sort of complaint regarding property or some other business dealing. So this is not, when we read first chapter 6, this is not a criminal matter like sexual abuse or theft or murder or some kind of crime that needs to be reported to the authorities. So let's distinguish what chapter 6 is about and what it's not about. Uh, these lawsuits were not related to things like murder or theft and so on, but is uh, a matter that can be handled internally by the church. Paul is not trying to say in 1 Corinthians 6 that the authorities have no place in society. He says that they do, actually, in, in a number of places, like Romans chapter 13. And we also know that Paul himself appealed to the authorities in the book of Acts uh, for defense for himself. And actually, when he was in Corinth on the first trip, he owed his uh, freedom to the decision of the proconsul Galeo when he was accused of a crime. So the passage is not saying that we don't need governments or judges. We're talking about grievances, disputes uh, that, that could be handled internally. Uh, and so uh, it, it's like the Corinthians were, were again, adopting the, the practice of the culture. As historians tell us, it was, very, it was a very regular occurrence for a person in Corinth to take another person to court. They loved going to court. And Paul lists a variety of reasons why the Corinthians should not adopt the practices of their day. So 1 Corinthians 6 is not a text that is to ever be used to cover up a crime. That is dangerous and is at times criminal itself. He's talking about dealing with grievances, matters that can be worked out in the context of biblical community. Now, there's also a connection with this passage and the previous passage. It's been a few weeks since we've been there, but you remember the exciting uh, passage in chapter 5 as the church was called to expel the immoral brother. And in both passages, Paul is critiquing the church because they have abdicated their responsibility to judge In chapter 5, he says, you guys need to act. Remove him. You can judge insiders. And now in chapter 6, he says, act. Don't take this to court, but take care of it yourself. And we mentioned in chapter 5, often people quote Jesus' passage about not judging to, to mean that we should just throw out all moral discernment and any kind of judgment altogether. Uh, but that was Jesus' uh, way of talking about having this critical spirit of being a fault finder. Uh, Paul is actually critiquing the church for not judging, for not acting appropriate in these two situations. Chapter 5, you should act and remove this person. Chapter 6, you should not go to court, but deal with this yourself. 
Now, final thing before we look at the text uh, in, in verse by verse. The passage sort of centers around two questions. Uh, verse 2, he says, do you not know? And in verse 9, he says, do you not know? We mentioned this previously, but Paul raises this question, do you not know, about ten times in the letter. Every time he talks about an ethical matter, he goes back to the theological rationale for why you should act in a particular way. Do you not know that your body is a temple? Do you not know, in this case, in verse 6, that you're going to have future responsibilities, which are amazing? Do you not know, uh, chapter 9, that the unrighteous cannot inherit the kingdom of God. He's basically saying you should know this, but you're not acting like you know it. You're not actually living out your theology. What is it that you should know? You should know the gospel. As he hits some aspect of the gospel in each of these questions, and each time again he's saying, become who you are. Remember who you are in Christ and bring your lifestyle and, and relationships in the church in alignment with that new identity. And so with that in mind, we'll look at this passage in, in two parts. First of all, Paul talks about grievances and the gospel. And then he talks about godliness and the gospel. So first, grievances and the gospel. You recall that great scene in John 13 when Jesus <clears throat> washes the disciples' feet. And he tells the disciples to love one another. And by this, he says, all people will know that you are my disciples by how you love one another. This should mark the church. And if you want an example of what it looks like to not love one another, we have it right here in chapter 6. As Paul uh, critiques their inability to handle these grievances uh, with the proper uh, love for the brothers and sisters in the church. So he begins with a direct question. When one of you has a grievance against another or a dispute... Does he dare go uh, to law before the unrighteous? That is, uh, not that there's no judge, there are no judges that can't handle things fairly, but he's using theological language, the unrighteous, meaning those who are not justified before God through faith in Jesus. You would rather go to them instead of the saints. Now, why is this litigation such a problem? Five reasons. First of all, he says, suing a fellow believer over a grievance can bring great pain and disunity to the church. Unity is a great concern in 1 Corinthians. Remember, the first four chapters in some way is, is dealing with that. And as I mentioned, the, the rift between the haves and the have-nots is addressed later in chapter 11. <clears throat> and you can imagine if a believer in a church is at it with another believer in the church and they're going to court over something that they could deal with internally, uh, this could split the church. People would get wounded in the process you can imagine people trying to sing. They would avoid each other in the church and that kind of thing. He says this, this could bring great pain and disunity. That, that idea runs all the way through the passage. In verses 2 to 3, we can add to that that suing a fellow believer over a grievance is inconsistent with our future responsibilities. And what are our future responsibilities? Notice what Paul says in verse 2. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? Almost in a throwaway statement, Paul says, do you not know we're going to judge the angels? And you're kind of like, no, not really. Could you explain a little more? Like, <laughs> but he doesn't elaborate any further. Don't you guys know we're going to judge angels? Nah, nah. I remember, I like being in high school when they say, hey man, when you're 16, what do you want to do in the future? Like, who knows, right? play ball, video games, uh, like I'm 16 years old. 
Or you ask someone in retirement, like, what are you going to want to do in your retirement? Well, here's something you can just say to blow people away. What are you going to do in the future? I'm going to judge angels. (laughs) That's my future. I think Paul has in mind passages like Daniel 7.22, where Daniel says he gave judgment to the saints of the Most High. Or Matthew 19, 28, Luke 22, Revelation 20. This, this idea is speak that we will reign with Christ. We will rule and reign with him. This is tied to our doctrine of our union with Christ. Just as we shall reign with Christ, we shall in some sense sit with him to judge the world. Paul says that's who you are. You are remarkably different than the rest of the world. You are a saint who will judge the world. So he says, shouldn't you be able to work out these disputes? If this is your future, if this is who you are, don't you have the resources necessary to handle these grievances? You're going to actually judge angels. Somehow we're going to do this. I I take this to refer to fallen angels. If you're going to judge these extraordinary creatures, shouldn't you handle trivial matters in this life? Now certainly in a glorified body we'll be wiser, we'll be smarter, but still, right now, we have the Word of God and the Spirit of God. We have the mind of Christ. We have the church. We have leaders and wise Christians to help mediate conflicts. We are not without resources to handle conflict. So he says uh, that this is inconsistent with your future responsibilities. Thirdly, suing a fellow uh, believer over a grievance is inconsistent with the nature of the church. He adds to this not only eschatology, the idea of the future, the doctrine of the future, but now ecclesiology. When he says, so if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Why take a matter internally in the church and bring it before people who are not in the church? He says, why are you outsourcing this? Why invite pagan judges who have no understanding of the gospel or the church or the future to arbitrate internal matters? The family of God can handle this. Now, you might be saying, is there no time to ever go to court? Well, of course, there probably is some situation that needs to go to court. And again, we're not speaking of criminal matters here, but but these relational matters. But the passage is clear that you need to always think about what you might lose if you do that. Usually, it's best to handle these matters internally. And today we have skilled Christian mediators who can step into churches and serve the church when needed. Fifthly, he says it's not only consistent with the future and with the doctrine of the church, but it damages our witness in the world. Verses 5 and 6, when he says, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute? (laughs) Remember that the Corinthians were boasting in their wisdom. Paul has critiqued their unwise decisions all through the letter thus far. And it's almost like a little little barb, you know. Is there no one wise enough in your church to handle this situation before brothers? And then he says, but brother goes to law against brother. And then notice this phrase, and that before unbelievers. Paul previously, if you remember in chapter 5, when he he, uh, rebukes them for not expelling the immoral brother, also had outsiders in mind. That the way the church lives is always sending a message to those who are not yet Christians. How we relate to one another as brothers and sisters affects our witness to an ever-watching world. 
And so it is very important that we ask ourselves the question about any kind of situation. What kind of message does this send to non-Christians? And if they were just, you know, working their way to court over everything the way people did in Corinth, wouldn't people be saying, well, the church is just like us? These people are just as selfish and greedy. These people can't get along. Hey, do you want to come to our church? No, thanks. And so we need to always think about our witness in all of our relational uh, conflicts. And then finally, he says, suing a fellow believer <coughs> over a grievance so shows that you care about other things more than your brother or sister. To have a lawsuit at all with one another is already a defeat to you. Why, why would you rather not suffer wrong, that is, suffer an injustice? Why not be defrauded or cheated? But you yourselves wrong, that is, you act uh, unjustly and defraud or cheat even your own brothers. He says that you, you've already lost when you've gone to the courts. Regardless of the outcome, regardless of whether you win or lose, you've lost. Because you may have lost a brother. You may have done great damage to the church. <coughs> And it, it looks like what is driving all of this behavior is, is money or possessions. That they care more about other things than the unity of the church and the witness that they're sending to the watching world. Why trade your birthright for a pot of porridge? There's something more important than winning this suit. Namely, the unity of the church <clears throat> and our witness to the watching world. As one commentator says, better to lose money and possession than to lose brother or lose your testimony as well. Grievances and the gospel. <clears throat> so the gospel is to motivate all of our decision making, every aspect of our lives, and all of our relational, uh, all of our relationships. <clears throat> and you notice how this, this passage goes in the direction of the cross. Why not suffer wrong like Jesus? Why not be defrauded? Because you feel like there is something more important. That love would cover a multitude of sins. I care about the unity of the church and our witness in the world. Grievances in the gospel. <clears throat> Excuse me. Voice is changing. Verses 9 to 11. He then shifts to kind of a, a more general uh, lifestyle uh, list of practices. Uh, he calls them just the unrighteous. And again emphasizes that they have been changed by the gospel. And that should then impact how they live. So he transitions to this next, do you not know? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And he reminds them that they've been changed by the gospel in a very remarkable passage, isn't it? When he says, do, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It's a before and after picture. As he goes from that to then say, and such were some of you. But you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. You see the, the, the brackets in verses 9 and 10, kingdom of God, kingdom of God. And then that sharp contrast, verse 11, such were some of you. It's a wonderful little sentence. It's, it's so, it just kind of appears quietly. You just read it kind of quietly and such were some of you, but those are revolutionary words. This is our story. Such were some of you. The gospel has transformed us. 
As Peterson paraphrases, a number of you know from experience what I'm talking about. For not so long ago, you were on that list. Since then, you've been cleaned up and given a fresh start by Jesus, our Master, our Messiah, and by God present in us, the Spirit. And we have come to not be unable to inherit the kingdom of God, but to inherit it by God's grace. So verses 9 to 10, who we were. Verse 11, who we now are. <clears throat> Verses 9 and 10. This, uh, some call this a vice list, a uh, sin list. It's very similar to others that are in uh, the New Testament. Um, it's a sampling. It's not exhaustive, but it's also not surprising as these sins are mentioned in various places uh, in the Bible. Most of them are in the Ten Commandments. I mentioned previously that the holiness code of Leviticus 18 to 21 um, may be in view here, as Paul has, if you like, a, a holiness code for the church. Now, if you're a Christian, this list does not mean that you can never be tempted in these areas. Christians need help. They need uh, help to put sin to death. And this doesn't mean that a person who has had a, a moral lapse at some point has now somehow lost their salvation. This list is describing a way of life. It's describing those who are unrepentant, those who persist in their rebellion. It, it refers to those who never come to Jesus for, to, for washing and for justification. And what Paul is saying to the Corinthians is, hey guys, you have said goodbye to that old life. So don't go back to it. And he says in the middle, doesn't he, do not be deceived or do not be led astray. It is possible for one to be deceived about their spiritual status. This is a needed word today in the church as you look through some of these sins that people want to justify. Paul says don't be deceived. The sexually immoral, that is a, a general term for any kind of sexual sin. He'll elaborate more fully on that in the next passage. Idolaters, those who worship gods other than the God of the Bible. Adulterers, those who are unfaithful to their spouse. Men who practice homosexuality, uh, which is a sin that is mentioned uh, regularly or often in, in the Bible, consistent in the Bible, been the consistent uh, position of the church throughout history. Thieves, those who take what do not belong to them. The greedy, those who always want more, use their power to get more. Drunkards, those who are enslaved to alcohol. Revilers, those who use harsh and even abusive language to mock or slander others. Swindlers, those who cheat on others. Paul says, some of you used to be on that list. That's who we once were. Now, Paul's just not making it up, I don't think, in, the, in Corinth. I think literally the people that were hearing this letter could say, yep, that's who I used to be. And maybe you're not a Christian, and you see yourself in that list. There's good news here. You can come to Jesus to be cleansed. You can be added to the such were some of you group. That's who the church is. The church is the such were some of you people. Or maybe this morning this text gives you hope because you're praying for an unbelieving friend or a family member who is marked by one or more of these things. There is hope for this text. There are hope for them in this text as well. Jesus Christ changes people. He transforms their entire lives. <clears throat> I was thinking about this passage as I knew it was the, the next passage for me to preach while I was on holiday. And I met a guy in the gym 
who was a, a nice guy, a large guy, looked like he could have been like a, a lineman uh, in previous years. He was about my age. And we're working out, spotting each other. He uh, was kind of talking to each other. And then he eventually gives me his business card. And it said that he was an executive of an adult club, the kind of club that I nor any other Christian should ever go to. And I had a decision to make as to how I'd respond to this. <laughs> so I showed him our website, and took him to the biography I had at the website. And I said, hey, if you're ever in Raleigh, come through. And he responded by, amazing. God's grace is amazing. And I began to pray for him and have continued to pray for him that the Lord would save him and make him a church planter. I've often said that former drug dealers make great church planters. Converted former drug dealers make great church planters. <laughs> this is what the Lord does. James and John want to burn up the Samaritans. Jesus changes them. Paul, the one who's writing this, used to terrorize Christians and becomes the great, becomes the great missionary and theologian of the church. Such were some of you. We are those who will inherit the kingdom of God. I love how Paul emphasizes the kingdom here. This is what Jesus came preaching. The kingdom of God is at hand. That is God's active and righteous rule overturning Satan's dominion in the world. The kingdom is this already but not yet reality. We enter the kingdom now because of what Jesus has done for us at the cross and in the resurrection. And we submit to his reign now gladly by following his word. And we wait on the, the, the not yet as the kingdom of God will come in all of its fullness. Right now it's invisible, but one day it will be visible. And the church is like a little outpost of the kingdom of God showing the world what the kingdom is like. And it is made up of the such were some of you people. Who we are. He uses three words to describe this new identity that we have. We've been washed. We've been sanctified. We've been justified. Three multifaceted uh, ways to talk about our experience of God's transforming grace. And for emphasis, Paul uses the Greek adversative, uh, the word but in English, Allah, three times. We don't do it in English because it's kind of uh, choppy. But it is literally, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified. This is who you were, but you've been washed. This is who you were, but you've been sanctified. This is who you were, but you've been justified. And that's something we should preach to our souls every morning. But this is who I am. When Satan comes to accuse you, you can tell him, that's who I used to be but I've been washed, I've been sanctified, I've been justified. Isn't this what Titus says when he says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in, in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. We have been cleansed, fully cleansed from this sinful lifestyle. You know, not all washings are the same, are they? You go to the beach and you go back to your house or apartment, wherever you're staying, and you might just sort of get under the 
outdoor shower to, you know, clean your feet off and stuff to go back in the house, or you might drive your car through a cheap car wash. It's not great, but it's better than it looked. Or you may go to Waffle House, right? I remember, I'm not characterizing all Waffle Houses. Uh, I'm sure many of them are great and clean, but... Um, <laughs> Well, I remember occasions over 20 years ago now, my, my friend David Platt and I were with our mentor, Dr. Shaddix, in Jacksonville, Florida, and it was late at night, and Platt and I wanted to go to Waffle House, and Shaddix had never been to Waffle House, and he kept saying something along the lines that it's, it's not clean, and again, not characterizing all Waffle Houses, but um, we got him to go to this Waffle House, and it was a magical moment as we're, we've ordered our food, and he tells the waitress that his spoon had a spot on it, and she takes his spoon puts it in a cup of water with her apron, wipes it off, and gives it back to him. It's like, this is perfect. This is just perfect. Not all cleansings are, are the same. Not all washings are the same. But when Jesus cleanses us, he cleanses us completely. He cleanses us internally. He cleanses us forever. And we cannot wash ourselves. Only the precious blood of Jesus can wash us. So if you find yourself on that list, there's a way to be clean. And it's not from religious effort. It's not simply from morality. Jesus Christ came to clean people. And we're sanctified. We've received the status of saint. We are holy. We have been justified, a legal term. Through Christ we are right with God. We stand before God because of Jesus, guiltless. We have now Jesus' righteousness. We receive that by faith. You notice the Trinitarian nature of this text too. The Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, has done all of this for us. Barrett says, he claims that gross as their sins may have been, they have for Christ's sake been freed from guilt, united to God, and acquitted. We are a washed people, we are a holy people, we are a justified people. I love how old John Newton, the former slave trader, put it after his conversion. I am not what I ought to be. Ah, how imperfect and deficient. I am not what I wish to be. I abhor what is evil and I would cleave to what is good. I am not what I hope to be. Soon, soon I shall put off mortality and with mortality all sin and imperfection. Yet though I am not as I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say I am not what I once was. A slave to sin and Satan, and I can hardly join with the apostle and acknowledge by the grace of God, I am what I am. So, my friends, this text, let it drive you to gratitude and let it drive you to godliness. How can we not read this and not be filled with gratitude? It is by God's grace that we are still not in verses 9 and 10. That's what we were, but we've been washed. And let this text drive you to godliness. Bring your lifestyle and your relationships into alignment with this new gospel identity. And remember that we now have power to live out this life. We have the Spirit of God. We are not powerless we are empowered to live a godly life. It doesn't mean we will not struggle with temptation. We will until we see Jesus. But we have power to persevere in faith and godliness. 
knowing that one day our Christ will come and sin will be no more. The kingdom of God will arrive in all of its fullness. So let us be grateful for the grace of God given to us through Jesus Christ. Let us never forget who we now are. And let us live our lives in relationship to this gospel identity. Thanks be to God for his word. Father, we thank you this morning for all that you've done for us in Christ Jesus. I pray that in all of the challenges of life, whether it be in personal temptation or relational conflict, that we would go back again and again to the gospel, remembering uh, who we are and what you've done for us, all of the resources that we now have as Christians, the different outlook of life that we now have, and we pray that you would empower us to live lives that are pleasing to you and that build up the church. I pray that you would help us as a church uh, to, to be relationally healthy uh, for the sake of the unity of the church and also for the witness of the church. And I pray that you would give us much grace in all of these things. We thank you for the future that we have in Christ, that the one who has washed us, sanctified us, and justified us is coming again for us. And we give you praise today, Jesus. In your name, amen.